four. Today, we've entitled it as Triumphalism, and we'll be explaining that in just a moment, in case you're not familiar with that term, <clears throat> but uh, our, as we kind of look back at last week's review, it kind of leads us into this. We saw Paul make a, uh, I think, a case for a biblical self-image, how we are to think about ourselves. He asked three questions. What makes us more special than anyone else? Of course, the answer is nothing because we aren't. He used the illustration of paper dolls. We're all the same. Uh, God gives, adorns us how he adorns us, and we are to accept that from his hand and uh, to serve him faithfully in it. Second question, what do you have that you did not earn? And of course, again, the answer is nothing. Everything we have was given to us. And then thirdly, why do you act as if you have earned it or deserved it? Which is, of course, what these uh, some of these people at the Corinthian church were doing. And of course, you shouldn't. There's no good reason to do that. It's deplorable. We act like we deserve anything other than the wrath of God. Uh, we uh, then looked at, we read quickly our, our what our text will do today, and it's That's why Paul was making this comparison. We are, our lives are a mess, physically speaking, before the world. You guys seem to have it all together, but he's, he's not saying that in a good way. And of course, when he gets to the end of the, the epistle, talking about the gifts of God, they were, the fact that God had been giving them gifts, whether it be healings, tongues, uh, you know, prophecies and revelation and so forth, they were becoming puffed up, like, look, we're demagogues. We we can do these miraculous things. Look at us. And they were causing them to look down upon others and upon Christians, perhaps, who didn't have, weren't gifted. So they were completely taking gifts that were, that, that were to serve others with and becoming elevated in uh, their pride. But they haven't stopped long enough to consider that the apostles aren't enjoying these things, the things that they were enjoying. And so it is one term we might use, over-realized eschatology. And, and the idea there is that eschatology, the study of future things, when you think that that which is not supposed to come until later has already come, we, it's a theological term, it's over-realized eschatology. In a sense. And there's a lot of different ways you could find application there. But this is... They have kind of seen themselves as already enjoying the good life. When Paul says, we're not enjoying the good life, that's something that we're looking forward to. So they think they, have, they are, should already be enjoying what is only promised to those who are faithful to the end. And so that also helps us understand uh, what triumphalism means. And we'll just find that in just a moment. And we looked at then a couple of verses that would support this. Matthew six nineteen and 20. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. It's over-realized eschatology, in a sense, right? You're trying to have it all now, your best life now. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then Hebrews 11, 26, 
Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was not demanding that God give him the reward now. And so all that kind of brings us uh, to our text today, which eight to the end of the chapter, which really continues the thoughts that we began last week. And so there are actually two concepts found in this passage. One, we, as we read it, it was pretty obvious, and that's sarcasm. We mentioned that last week. Paul is being sarcastic, not an attempt to be funny, uh, not an attempt to be mean, an attempt to make a point that you guys have got a serious issue here. When he says, you know, you're kings, we're not, we're fools, you guys are enjoying the good life, and we're not. He wasn't saying, wow, I wish I could be like you. He's saying, you guys have something wrong. So as he continues to address the problems in the Corinthian church, we're seeing that they had a blind spot when it came to seeing themselves uh, for what they really were. Uh, again, having that biblical worldview of the self-image that we dealt with last week. And that's something that we all can identify with, right? It's very difficult for us. And I know, you know, and I'm sure we all can identify with this. I get, I would imagine, I know I can. When I look in the mirror, or when I hear myself talk or interact with others, I see what I want to see, and I hear what I want to hear, and I, I have to stop and say, you know, how I see myself, I still see myself as that 25-year-old way back in the day. I know that's not how people see me today. When I say something, I know what I mean by that, and I know, you know, and, and, and I, it's not always taken the same way. We tend to see ourselves the way we want to see ourselves, and every once in a while it's good to just stop and consider, look deep in what we're doing, what we're saying. How is God viewing these things? How do others see these things? And so this certainly is something that Paul is impressing upon them here. Have you ever seen a church that, uh, an ad perhaps that spoke of all the ways that they can meet your needs? And this seems to be the Corinthian church. We've got it all together. Look at us. And so they have, they tell you about the exciting messages and the exciting worship services, the, all the teen activities, classes on any number of current issues that you might be having. We've got a class for it. We've got all sorts of programs. Uh, we have a gifted membership. Uh, we uh, look for gifts in everybody and, 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 and develop those gifts. And uh, one wonders if they have any deficiencies at all. And it seems to be like often like the Corinthian church. They have a great reputation, but it's all in their own mind. And as someone said, maybe we need to quit selling ourselves and start selling Christ. What we kind of want to look at today with this idea of triumphalism is thinking that we should have it all together now and it's somehow we're impressing the world. One of these days when I have the time, whether it be in the pulpit or another time, I'm going to mention to you what some of the things that happened at the Southern Baptist Convention and why we have distanced ourselves from that group. Not that there aren't some good people in it, but uh, they... Uh, have become a conviction that is way more concerned with what the world thinks than what God thinks. And the fact, one of the things they were saying at the convention this year was, the world is watching. Well, no, the world can care less about the Southern Baptist Convention. The world can care less about us. Uh, and uh, we don't 
make our decisions because the world is watching. Make our decisions because we want God is watching, but which is what you did not hear at the convention. So as we get to chapters five and six, we're going to see that their pride is somewhat misplaced because they are allowing and involved in unbelievable immorality. They are suing each other in the secular courts, and yet they think they have it all together. And of course, as soon as you think you have arrived and have need of nothing, then you don't have any need of the word of God either. And so Paul's sarcasm isn't here as an attempt to be funny, but rather a harsh way of speaking to impress them with the seriousness of their plight. And as he'll finish, he's doing that not to just shame them or to belittle them, but to get them to repent because he loves them. <clears throat> kind of like the Laodicean church. Christ told them, I will remove your candlestick. I'll I'll put it into the church, to this church if I have to, if this present attitude continues. And this is something that's happened throughout church history. And of course, you know, people who have gone and and toured Great Britain, for instance, wanting to visit all the old famous churches, the the Puritan churches. And of course, the, the sad thing is that most of those places are not churches anymore, or if they are, they're completely liberal. The, the word of God is not taught, and it, so it kind of, it's a little depressing. Richard Baxter's church, who, who's one of the great Puritans, it, at this point today is open 45 minutes a year for a choir to sing, and that is as close to a religious ceremony as ever takes place in that building. So the, the candlestick was removed. And we don't want our our candlestick to be removed. We, we want to be a light on, on a hill to the world. And it requires us to take the Lord seriously. See ourselves for who we are. And so what we see in our text today is a tension between how they see themselves and, and it's how Paul sees himself in the apostles. Basically, Paul says that he and the apostles have not arrived at the place that they think they have. Now, in chapter 1, if you remember, Paul does did say that we have been given everything we in Christ Jesus. At the end of chapter 3, we have all things in Christ. But we understand that in a biblical sense. We have everything that we need to serve the Lord faithfully, to be Christ-like. As, as Peter says, we have all that's necessary for life and godliness. It doesn't mean that because we uh, will someday inherit the world, that really all the world's ours, and if I see something I want, then I can get God to give it to me. <clears throat> There's a big difference in having the Spirit and the gifts and being controlled by the Spirit and everything, and using them in a God-honoring way, and thinking that I have all those things so that I can be, that I'm somebody, and serve myself. So, uh, one wonders if, if they ever got to read the Ephesian letter, the epistle to the Ephesians, where Paul five times talks about how we have been seated in heavenly places. One wonders if they had heard that, if they don't think we're already seated in heavenly places. We already are reigning. See, it's over-realized eschatology. It's we are, we've already arrived. It's triumphalism. And they don't realize that no, you have all this in Christ, and it's hugely important, but it doesn't, but the elevation is not here yet. 
what they had forgotten is that while they were in Christ, and while we are in Christ, we are also in Pennsylvania. We're also in the flesh. We aren't perfect. We're not glorified. We're still sinful. And we still live among the world. And we still struggle with sin, with trials. Uh, and that's part of the Christian life. And that's okay. We're justified in Christ. But we don't ignore our sins if it doesn't matter. That's antinomianism. That's saying, well, my sins forgive us. It doesn't matter how I live. Well, except the fact that sin dishonors the Lord. And so, how can you say to love the Lord on one hand and then don't obey His commandments, right? That's what Jesus said as much. So as we pointed out in chapter 5, they seem, or we'll, we'll, we'll point out in chapter 5, they seem to have quit battling the flesh, the sin in the flesh, right? They're left, left this guy to live in adultery with his, perhaps his father's wife or his mother-in-law. I'm not really sure what's going on there. And they haven't said anything to him. So they don't, they don't care about holiness and godliness. Paul says, I'm still fighting for my life for the cause of Christ. I'm still fighting against sin. But they see themselves as already sitting on thrones, deserving honor instead of seeing themselves as bond slaves of Christ who must suffer before they are glorified. And the reason, again, you say, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to us. Turn on the TV preachers as they sit in palaces of gold and tell me that it's still not a problem. And it's still not something that people uh, battle. They're not really battling anymore. They just completely capitulated to it. Let's just uh, define triumphalism. First, there's two different ways of looking at this. First of all, it's a disproportionate or unreasonable celebration of perceived successes and virtues of a given group, religion, or ideology relative to those of others. So it is, uh, again, a perceived success. We have arrived at a place that others have not in one way or another. But it's also an attitude or belief that a particular doctrine, culture, or social system, particularly a religious or political one, is superior and that it will or should triumph, triumph over all others. Now, as Christians, we know that someday we will triumph. Of course, it's be in Christ. He will triumph and will, on his hotels, get to follow him into the kingdom. We shall inherit the earth. Christianity is right, everything else is wrong, and it will prevail, because Christ will prevail. That's what Christianity is. Not our doing, Christ's doing. And so there is a sense in which we are triumphant in that sense. But when we think that we have arrived, or that perhaps we think the church should uh, be in power, that the church should grab hold of America and make it a, a Christian nation, whatever, however that might look, look look like, that is where you have kind of gone over to this idea of over-realizing eschatology, that the church is to be triumphant now, other than just preaching the gospel. Um, and that's one reason why I'm not post-millennial, because I don't ever see in the Bible where the church is ever going to be triumphant, only a suffering church. Now, when the Lord comes back, yes. But not until then. He's the one who's going to bring triumph. And so that gives you an idea here of, of what's going on, I think, in our uh, in, uh, 
our text today. So you think they think the battle is over. You see, they think it individually. I've already I'm already reigning over sin. They think it corporately. We are already as a church. Uh, we are reigning over our enemies. We are having the good life. Uh, we, we deserve uh, wealth or health or whatever it might be. We're, we 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 want it now, not later. They had lost their hunger and thirst for righteousness because they thought they'd already attained it. Uh, but notice Paul's attitude in Philippians three twelve. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. So he knows the battle's won in Christ, and he's fighting. But he knows the battle's still got to be engaged. Paul knew that he was nothing without Christ, and that he was going to look like a fool to this world, and that mostly Christians would be at the bottom of the social and economic totem pole. He was there to serve both Christ and the church. But they seem to be all above that. In our text today, that's what he's saying. We're serving and we're suffering because of it. You guys are reigning and aren't suffering because of it. Something's wrong. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. And I think, again, I know I've mentioned it several times, but I think it's where it's all headed in chapter 11. You have the rich, who are probably this group, looking down and not sharing their food with the poor in the church because, well, you guys, something's wrong with you. And that's why they were sick and dying. Because they weren't dividing the, uh, discerning the uh, body of Christ properly. They looked at the poor brothers and sisters and assumed that they weren't living for the Lord or otherwise they'd have what they have. But in verse 9, Paul uses the illustration of a Roman enemy that has vanquished and marched through the streets. Uh, the, the Rome, uh, when they would defeat an enemy, they would march some of the soldiers and especially their generals and leaders through the streets of Rome and basically making fun of them, displaying them. You see this in verse 9 where he says, For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. That was a that was a term that was used for these vanquished generals who were paraded through in humiliation for they had been conquered and at the end they would have a ceremony and they would kill them. The final humiliation. And that's how Paul saw himself. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. He was paraded in this world uh, serving the Lord faithfully, but eventually he was beheaded. He was killed. I was reading uh, or, or watching something about the uh, conquest of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the two main leaders, uh, rebels in Jerusalem, were when it was finally taken, were taken to Rome, paraded through the streets, and when it was all said and done, they strangled. Because that's just what they did. That's what Paul is referring to here. Triumphalism is expecting our lives and churches and even our country perhaps to be all neat and tidy, no sickness, no death, no struggles, just God wonder, blessing us in wonderful ways. And you hear this all the time. And, and what it is, in, in one, in another sense, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is a oppressive form of legalism. Ever thought about Joe Olstein is a legalist and an oppressive legalist because he says, if you do the right thing, God will bless you. 
And when God doesn't bless you, what what is what's the only conclusion you come to? I haven't done something wrong. It's, it's legalism. It, it, it's not understanding grace or, or any other part of the Bible as far as that goes. It's, if I obey well enough, God should give me what I want. But then, of course, you immediately quit challenge yourself to be faithful because you already are. And you can't help but compare yourself with your church to those poor slobs who haven't attained the state that you have, just like the Pharisee with the publican in Jesus' parable. You don't, Lord, I'm, just, I'm thankful that I'm not in that state. I'm not as bad as that person. And it, and it, it, it's a backhanded compliment because you aren't really thanking God for grace. You're thanking of God that you're so wonderful. <clears throat> you ever wonder why churches don't have verse 13 on the, on the billboards? We slander, when slander we entreat, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's put that on our billboard. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that some people would come just because, what in the world are you talking about? Because it is so un-Christian in, in the world's way of thinking, and I think in a lot of Christians' way of thinking, we want to put things on the billboard that make us look smart and successful. We have quaint sayings, smart sayings, clever sayings, something, something to impress people. Because we're proud to start with, and we think, and, and this is what we because we we study chapter one of First Corinthians that we are going to the, the world's going to think we are fools, and we completely forget that and think that we can somehow gain the respect of the world when they hate when Jesus says they're going to hate us. We think we can impress the lost into coming to Christ by looking at how well He's blessed us. If you want to be where I'm at, then you need to, you know, become a Christian or whatever, convert. So instead we put on how community-minded we are and how all your needs can be met if you come to our church. But we don't like to be seen as fools and scum like so much trash, which is what Paul is saying here. We, we think somehow that's going to hurt the cause of Christ. That's because we don't believe in the sovereignty of God. The, re- the word refuge here uh, off scouring is uh, the word that they would use when you would clean your plate and you're done with your plate and my wife gets on to me and she says I leave too many scraps on my plate but when you do whatever you, when you're done right you wipe them off in the trash and he says that's what we are that's, this is what the church is he says we're just we're just stuff that nobody wants and whenever they have opportunity they wipe us right out of existence and yet you guys somehow think the church is different than that. It was a term that was used for the lowest criminals who were often brought to be sacrificed at pagan ceremonies. This is what the world thinks of us, Paul says. But evidently, this is the Lord's will for us to be looked down on as fools. Uh, and, and we just don't get it. We don't, And we don't like it. And, and I can understand that. Nobody wants to be seen as uh, irrelevant. Stupid, you know, you know they think the gospel's stupid. So obviously, if we believe the gospel, we're stupid, right? Nobody, nobody enjoys that. But Jesus says that that's what's that's what's going to be. But that's okay. 
because that's how I'm going to build my church. And Jesus was upfront about the cost. We try to hide the cost. It seems like we, we want everything to look good to those coming in. We want to have someone said today the uh, that the music leader has got three qualifications to most churches. He's got to be able to sing. He's got to be able to play the guitar, and he's got to look good too. We've got to impress people when they come in, right? And you have some fool up there preaching who is lucky to uh, put two or three words together coherently. Well, we can't have that. Jesus wasn't worried about numbers because only the elect are going to be saved anyway. Such thinking denies the fact that the offensive gospel saves, not human reasoning. That a gospel that, the fact that it, everybody hates the gospel, but yet that's how God saves, as we said in chapter one, demonstrates that, that salvation is a work God does. All we have to do is present the gospel, is preach Christ. We don't have to look good doing it. We don't have to be respected. We just need to do it. And do it in a loving way, but we just do it. But it is through our weakness that the church grows. And church history has shown this over and over again, but again, each generation forgets it. We, we have to resist the temptation that the world needs to be impressed with us. Yes, they should have nothing to accuse us of. We should be good citizens. We should be loving people. We, uh, but we're talking about the worldview. But it, when they don't understand, you know, when, when we get up and, and, on Sunday morning, Sarah and I walk to the garage and our neighbors are doing whatever they do, they, they don't have a good church. You know, they don't understand why we're doing that. Right, that's all well and good. I want to be a good neighbor, but at the end of the day, they're not impressed with me. They don't understand us. That we're foolish to them. And, and that's okay. Because they need to be impressed with Christ. And this has always been the downfall of churches uh, because we try to gain respect instead of preaching Christ. We, we think we need to look smart enough. We need to impress the culture around us. And, and we see churches capitulating today on every different subject, thing that's out there, every different social issue out there because they refuse to lose the respect of the lost. I'm not going to do it. And I, I've said before, like the, like the preacher who preaches against homosexuality until all of a sudden his child tells him uh, that he is a homosexual. And all of a sudden, well, God loves homosexuals. What happened? Well, he's not going to be scorned by the world. It's a rampant problem today. Now, outwardly it looks. It, it, it might work. You got a church who got a lot of people in it. They've got a great song service. They've got a, a slick preacher. It's all good outwardly, but if the people inside are all unregenerate for the most part, who cares? So, what your lost loved ones need to see is you living for Christ, not compromising with them in everything, trying to stay on the good side. So, let's kind of boil it down to maybe something that. We face on a daily uh, basis trying to stay on the good side of our loved ones 
uh, it's, and, and not being very careful about talking about our faith and, and pressing the claims of Christ on anybody. Don't want to ever talk about hell or where someone might be going. Because we think it's more important that we maintain a relationship with them rather than confronting them with the gospel. So as long as they think that they mean more to you than Christ, then Christ isn't being elevated before them. They're, they're not fooled by your hypocrisy. If they know that at the end of the day, you'll do whatever you have to do to stay on their good side, that's an excuse for them to ignore everything we're saying. Because they know we don't really believe it. But I'm saying it, it's, uh, it's not going to hurt them to see us struggle with sin or struggle in our finances, struggle with health, to, 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 to be like Paul here. That they don't have to see us as having already arrived. They just need to see that Christ means more to us than even them. Me struggling with my sin will not bother truth seekers, those who truly are being convicted by God. Because they know that we're no different than them. They know we're sinners. So we need to be honest about our struggles and ask for help and not act like we're already there. That includes me. Because they need to see that Christ means so much to us that we will continue year after year, struggle with our sinfulness, uh, press towards Christ, not compromise regardless of the cost. And that's the only thing that they need to see in us. There was a, a, a pastor I, I knew years ago who wrote a little book. And uh, he talked a little bit about this. In, in the, I was talking earlier about how it's a, it's a very legalistic thing because it, it's saying that I've got to live a proper way. And if I do, God will bless me and I'll look good before others. And he talks about how they were born legalists. We're born with the idea that if I obey the Lord, if I do right, God will bless me. And when I do wrong, well, God's going to get me for that too. I, I think the old Archie Bunker, wasn't that one of the things? No, I'm similar to the spin-off mob. I'm not watching that, I'm just saying. She was known for saying, God will get you for that, right? And it's that idea, it's, it's, it's God's, you know, going to only bless you if you jump through the right hoops, but if you don't, he's going to get you for that. It's all a very legalistic way, and we're born like that. And that's why uh, so many forms of Christianity kind of go off in that direction. And, and we all know that we struggle with that because we, we walk around and we're, and we're doing pretty good, you know, and I, I talked to someone about the Lord this week and start feeling pretty good about ourselves. And then... You know, we have a bad day or a bad week, and well, we expect, you know, boy, I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but you know, I don't deserve anything. And we have a legalistic way of thinking. And sometimes we, we walk around, we're, we've done so good that when God does, all of a sudden God does bless us for whatever reason, at least what we think is a blessing. It just makes sense. I, I've been pretty good. I understand why I got that promotion. You know, we're, we're just prone to be legalistic. Can you imagine though Paul trying to live like this with all the beatings and abuse and hunger and rejection he suffered? He would have committed suicide early on because it's just not working. He's being made a fool of for the world. But Paul knew that no, this is what I've been called to do. And this doesn't mean that God's angry with me. It doesn't, if, if I 
go a few months and I'm doing pretty well, it doesn't mean that God's pleased with me any more than any other time. Because it's all of grace. I, I, I'm accepted in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why so many Christians struggle with depression. Because they assume that their struggles, you know, the, the trials of life are a result of their failure instead of opportunities to serve the Lord. But when we love Christ supremely, we still will struggle. His power will be seen in us. When we serve each other, even when things are difficult for us, Christ is seen in us. That's why it's, it's always grace or it's legalism. It's always something we've got to be watching in ourselves. We, li- we need to live for Christ and not pretend that we have defeated sin or that sin's effects. We need to live as if we need Christ and therefore need his word and we need each other and we need the gospel. You know, I envy those who don't need church, don't need it much anyway, who don't really need Christian fellowship. You know, they don't need very much of it. They don't seem to be around any more than they have to be. I envy those kind of people. Yes, that's, that's sarcasm. And I think those kind of people often look for churches, big churches they can hide in because, you know, if I don't show up for a month, nobody notices, nobody cares. But no, we need Christ and we need all the things, the means of grace that he has given us. And so, are we willing to live as if being dunces of the world will actually honor Christ? Well, it seems like verse 13 that the apostles did. Perhaps we have scared off people because we think we're so phenomenal that they assume that we can't live up to their standards. Maybe that's sometimes the case. But we're all weak, as Paul just said, and to realize that will humble us and make us servants. And it's only servants who can do the master's will anyway. Not rebels, not the proud. So if we try to use our outward lack of problems as a way to impress each other, how is it that Paul had nothing but problems? That's kind of Paul's point here. And it also assumes that you must be more holy than your brother. And that, that's again, it goes back to the legalism. Because once you buy into this, then you start looking at everybody in the church and how they're doing, how well they're doing. That person's got to do something like isn't, It's like Job is not even in the Bible. Job, you know, everything, lost everything. And it had nothing to do with the way Job lived. It's Phariseeism. So our goal should be to be found faithful regardless of the trials that we have, that the power of God may be seen in you, which will be the end of all this when we get to Second Corinthians. That is being triumphant in the Christian life. Not to have our best life now, but to serve the Lord while being... Uh, made fun of by the world. Not not eradicating all signs of weakness, but being but by demonstrating that I have nothing apart from Christ. Yes, we will eventually triumph because Christ is alive. The world will be ours, but only in the glorified state, not now. So in verse fourteen, this verse is extremely good to read because it reminds us that we are not to throw up our hands just because saints fail 
but to love them because Christ does. Notice what he says here. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. He says, look, I, I spoke a little harshly here, but this is important to the point that, uh, as he says, I, I, I'll come if I have to and deal harshly with it. Paul says, I, I'm not just bawling you out to belittle you, but that you might be convicted and get right with the Lord. And so his, his tone changes from sternness to tenderness. Anytime we must admonish and speak frankly, it should always be to help and to encourage, not just to be critical, not to uh, uh, shame somebody in, in a belittling way. We must always be motivated to come across as concerned for the honor of the Lord, not just being critical. Now let me say a little something here about the idea of shame in the Bible. As Paul talks about shame, he'll talk about it uh, again later on. When he, when he, uh, we have the idea often that shame, I, I, there were some in my church in uh, New York, I went there, who had been worked with children and had been taught in, in secular uh, schools and situations that any reference to shame is bad. Never, never, never shame. It should not should be part of our vocabulary. Well, the problem is the Bible talks about shame, and, and sometimes we are to be ashamed. There are some things that should shame us. But there's a proper way to use shame, and there's an improper way to use shame, and so we need to work through that. We might paraphrase it by saying that he's not trying, just trying to shame them, because a, a few times in this letter, he specifically says that they ought to be ashamed for the way they're behaving. But he uses shame. You know, Adam and, and Eve were ashamed because of their sin, right? There are some things that we are to be ashamed of. Now, in our culture today, you're not to be ashamed of anything. You're supposed to be proud of anything you do. And you see the complete, how it's all turned upside down. But we are to be ashamed of our sin, but not in the sense where I feel belittled and I'm worthless and I just am defeated, but it causes us to repent and to do right. And that's using shame in the proper way. And, and we'll, again, we'll just for instance, in chapter 6, verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So it, 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 was, it says, you should be ashamed that you have to have lost people uh, settle matters of dispute before you. And he's not, he's not trying to belittle them. He's saying it's time to, to start doing the right thing. So he's not trying to shame them so that they never would amount to anything. That's using shame to belittle or to manipulate, not to help change. So when a parent uses shame to keep a child unsure and dependent upon himself, to manipulate them, to tell them they'll never amount to a hill of beans, they're not being trained as they should. They are, that's using shame in an in a awful way. That's why Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not about you just, this is what I want you to do, so do it. That just brings resentment, because they see that you have, you have no higher purpose than your own ego. But there are things we should be ashamed of, but that is to spur us to do better, not to give up. Giving up is an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. It's to say that Christ isn't sufficient. Biblical use here is in Jeremiah 8.12. Were they ashamed and they committed abomination? No. 
They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Well, that describes a lot of people today, right? Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them, and they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. They should have been ashamed, but they aren't. One mark of a cult, which might very well have been going on in the Corinthian church, is to use shame to control people. You hold shame over someone. You haven't done things the right way. You're not able to do it. You're not as good as I am. You'll never be at my level. You better just let me do it. Paul's purpose was to admonish to get them, uh, to admonish them, to get them to another place. So, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.11, As you know, we how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does the children, that you would walk worthy of God who has called you into his whole his kingdom and glory. So, the, the exhortation and the admonishment, along with comfort, was to get them to another place, to a better place. When you have a sheared conscience, so you lose all shame. And so in verses 15 and 16, back here in chapter 4, Paul goes on to say, For though you have countless guides, these are this is not a, a word that is used for a pastor or a shepherd, but a teacher or a, a nanny, babysitter. You have a lot of people telling you what to do in Christ. You do not have many fathers. For I become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. And then he goes on to say, I, that's why I said Timothy to you, <clears throat> to not to teach you something different, but to remind you of my ways in Christ. Every time it says be imitators of me, it's as I am an imitator of Christ. Right? It's never about himself. That's one, one, that's way, one way you know it wasn't a cult because it was elevating Christ and not the person. A good teacher leads you to enjoy the Lord, but not in a legalistic relationship. He doesn't tell you that you had better behave or Christ is going to get you. He exalts Christ and causes you to love him. You see, some sons who seem to be just like the father, right? And, and that can be a good thing or maybe it's a bad thing. And I think it illustrates what we're talking about. Everything they see their daddy do, because they love their daddy, they want to do it. They want to be just like daddy. Have you, have you seen a son? I want to be just like daddy. Or maybe, you know, daughter. I want to be just like mommy, right? But there's a kind of pathetic twist to all that you sometimes see. And that's where a father raises a son or to, I want you to be just like me. I want you got to, uh, start, you got to take over the family business. You gotta be just like me, but you never can be. You never really live up to who I am. And so, he shames that son into, uh, trying to live up into a way that he never can be. Because he never will accept what he does. He keeps shaming him into being better, but better is never good enough. But you see, one is love and grace, and one is legalism. It, one is, uh, I do things because I love my daddy. The other is, I try to I tried to live up to my daddy's standards only to find shame. Paul leads them to Christ by love. A loving father and a loving leader understand their children and are gentle as well as intense because of the seriousness and the danger of not following the Lord as we should, not that there's not consequences. The end is always, though, to get us to serve the Lord better, not to give up, not to, 
I'm not up here to say, you know, you guys will never amount to a hill of beans, no matter how hard you try. That's not the issue. The issue is we are just to serve the Lord the best we can. Evidently, they were beginning to look different than the norm. Maybe because Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to, to remind you about what I uh, said and to start following me as I have followed Christ. They, they begin to think, we've got the key. Everybody else is wrong. Everybody else is going to hell at a handbasket. We've got our act together. But a group of people that all look alike and act alike is a big red flag, right? That's a cult. Now, I don't mean that as a group of people, as a church, we are as, to live, to, to look alike in that we're all loving the same Lord and living to please Him. Obviously, we're going to look a lot alike in that way. But when you go, when you see people, they all dress alike, they wear their hair alike, everything's the same, they can't, they all speak the same. You know, something is wrong here. And you know, there's a, there's a leader who's forcing them to be like him. He's, he's set the rules. And that's not how churches function. Well, then as he comes to the end here in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So he's given another warning here because it appears that some of these teachers assume that Paul's not going to come and so they can get by with whatever they want to do. But of course, that would be silly, first of all, because like he said in verse 5, we're all going to stand before the Lord. But he says, you know, some of you think that I'm not going to come and take care of this. But, he's, but he, he, he does later on. So he finishes with an interesting little test here at the end of the chapter where he will conduct he will conduct this test to prove who's being true to Christ. And he says, I'll come to you sooner in verse 19, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. In other words, talk is cheap. I'm going to come and I'm going to see what their teaching is doing to the church. Where is it leading them? In the, what, what kind of power is behind it? For the kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's one thing to preach an impressive sermon and to have an impressive method of ministry, but Paul wants to see where it's taking them in their lives. Are their words producing godliness, patience and suffering, hope, love for the brethren? Well, we know it's not. It's producing ungodliness and divisions. It will be clear soon that it isn't producing anything that, that can be attributed to the Holy Spirit. Even the gifts of the Holy Spirit are being perverted. The, 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 the literal gifts are being used to elevate themselves. They're everything that they're doing. And if they're just like in Matthew 17... Lord, have we not done great marvelous signs in your name? And the Lord says, I depart, I never knew you. And that's some of these guys. are going to fall into the same category. They talk the talk, but they have not, they don't have the power to walk the walk. And Paul knew that evidently when he got there, uh, it would be manifest. Their preaching was eloquent, but it was not biblical. It was not Christ on so what good are gifts and knowledge if it doesn't translate into godliness? So we'll just finish up here then. Um, in verse 21. If he had to, he would come and use his authority. But he hopes his letters would do the trick by the Holy Spirit. That term, trick. And, and that's how a, a good preacher understands that. Um, 
that at the end of the day, if the Holy Spirit doesn't cause you to agree with what I'm saying, then it doesn't matter. Because if you just agree with me because it's me, because I've convinced you, but you don't have any real conviction in the heart, what does it matter? Right? So I want the Holy Spirit to transform us. I don't want you to look like me. I don't want you to dress like me. Now, as I am serving the Lord, yes, just as I do you, as I see Christ in you, I want to be like that. I'm encouraged to be like that. But I don't want you to do things just because I tell you to do it because that's just a cult. And that's what I think Paul is saying here at the end of the day. He's going to see what's the power behind all this. Paul would come and get rid of these teachers and it would be beneficial to the church. But that's not all that's needed because if the Holy Spirit doesn't accompany them, then it's just all going to turn come right back to where it was. So we want to be Timothy's pointing people to the Lord we don't want to be uh, you know, these super apostles pointing people to ourselves because that's not going to get us anywhere. And this will all be illustrated in chapters 5 and 6. And we see some examples of the results of their teaching uh, that we already alluded to. Okay? So we'll stop there today. Any 